right, so do you feel pity for the woman? I think there's always a, a time when we are reading this passage where people are like, oh, you know, she's just this woman that is just out sleeping around with everybody in town. And, and there's just a sense of like, oh, we don't really want to deal with this woman. And that's what the town felt like. Like, we're not going to deal with this woman. But I think that, that just hearing her story there, do you feel pity? This is probably one of my favorite stories. I have no idea why this, this story just has been one that has resonated with me. When I was in college, we studied this um, one time, and then I had to speak on a passage, and I picked this one. And then I had to speak again on a passage, and I picked this one again. So when Tim was like, hey, I'm going to be out of town would you preach on the woman at the well? I was like, yes, because that's like, for some reason, one of my favorite interactions that Jesus has with somebody. And as I started to prep for it, I realized there's another interaction that Jesus has with someone that is equally important and mirrors this one in some ways. And that would be the demon-possessed man. And so as I started wrestling with this and, and preparing for this, I went and I started just looking at that and looking at the correlation. And, and there's only a few things that they have similar because obviously she's a woman. She is a Samaritan and the man is a man and he is not Jewish, not Samaritan. He is completely an outsider. She is uh, one of the, the people in town that like nobody wants to deal with and so is he. So there's a similarity there. She's possessed by her own demons, not actually fit, like literally possessed by demons, and he's literally possessed by demons. So there's some, some things that are important, but there's one thing that is super important about the two of them that is similar, and we're going to get to that at the end. But we have a, a large uh, undertaking today, um, and I typically don't preach as long as Tim does, but I think today might be one of the exceptions. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the Word. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, Jesus and his interaction with these people and the grace that changed lives. We pray that as we explore your Word today, that you change our lives. Um, maybe not as drastic as the people that we see, but help us to see their story in light of our own story. And help us to see our story as unfolded by grace, because it is. And whether we were possessed by demons or not, or whether we were married multiple times and divorced or not, we have these things that have changed in our lives. We pray that as we open your word today, that you lead us to the truths that you have for us and help us to see your glory unfold through your grace. Pray all to Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, well, would you open to John chapter 4 for me? That's where we find the story of the woman at the well. We're going to start there. I think that she is just a really powerful character, and I really like the way that Cindy wrote that, because like, we're going to explore some of those exact words that she said. So let's just start right at the beginning. We're just going to go through the first six verses. This kind of sets the stage. Now, just so you, I can set the stage just a little bit, um, Jesus was teaching, and he decided he was going to Galilee, um, and we're going to explore some of the interesting things about how he travels. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to the sound of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I think one of the interesting things is verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if we look at a map, it's a direct route. It makes a lot of sense. So it doesn't make much sense for him to, for John to write this. He had to pass through Samaria. Unless we look culturally. Because Jewish people wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. So much, in fact, that when traveling from Judea to Galilee or backwards, they would actually cross the river, go the other side of the river, and then cross back to avoid Samaria. Now, this in practice was, was not observed by everybody, but a majority of Jewish people, and especially rabbis and, and the Pharisees and a lot of the people in the temple, would do that. So they would not go through Samaria. So the had to go through Samaria isn't just a passing, oh, you know, it was on the way, he had to go through Samaria. That doesn't make sense when you look at the way that they avoided the area. So I think that the way that it is written is he had to go there, and he had to go there for one purpose. It had nothing to do with his travel plans. It had nothing to do with him going straight up through and taking the shortest route. It had everything to do with him having to see this woman. That's why John writes this. He had to see this woman. His whole point of going this route and not doing what normal Jewish people would do in avoiding Samaria was to go and talk to this one woman, and he went to seek her out. So it's very interesting that he goes through there. Now, there is some interesting things about the city itself. Um, There are scholars that think that this city, and very likely, we see this a lot throughout the New Testament, this is actually a corruption of sect. Yeah, Sechem, which is an Old Testament city that we see a lot of. So if we look at that and we kind of look at what it says, in Genesis 34, we see that the first proselyte joined Israel. So the first non-Israelite came to know the Lord at this place. The Valley of Acre ran by the city, and in Hosea chapter 2, that is considered hope to the Gentiles. So this valley was a symbol of hope. And again, we're dealing with the non-Jewish people. Abimelech was crowned here. Jeroboam made his royal seat there. So there's royalty involved with the city. And as we saw, Joseph and Jacob were heavily involved. In fact, Joseph's bones would have been buried there, and Jacob dug a well there. And we don't have Old Testament scripture to support that Jacob dug a well there, But it makes sense because they dug wells everywhere. When you stop somewhere for a a while, you dug wells to feed your herds. So Jacob's well was there. So these are very important things. And when we look at what Jesus did here, it's also different from what he did throughout the rest of Scripture. Because Jesus never goes to Samaria and preaches. The entire time that he is going, he doesn't. And in fact, he even instructs his disciples not to go there. I'm in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, and he's sending them out. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus' focus was on the the lost sheep in the house of Israel through his entire ministry. So he makes one stop in Samaria and makes one person a convert. That's his goal. He goes and he talks to this woman. So it's very important. 
Um, and in fact, the only, we don't see him mentioning going to Samaria until we get to Acts. And he instructs the disciples to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world. So there is an instruction, but it hasn't happened yet. And to this point, Jesus has avoided preaching in Samaria, and he has also avoided sending any of his disciples. So it's kind of interesting that he's going here and spending time here. So then we see in verses 7 and 8, this woman. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. There's a couple of interesting things here. One, the sixth hour, if you don't know, like the Jewish culture is to count by sunup, so it would be about noon. So the sixth hour was the heat of the day. The other thing to see is that there is nobody else there, just this woman. There's no other interaction. He sent away the disciples who were with him. There's no other people from the town because this is the hottest part of the day, which means that nobody wants to be out. Nobody wants to go get water. But this woman comes to draw water. So we have to look at the woman. One, she's poor. She has no servants to draw water for her. So no one went to draw water. She had to go herself. She's a stranger. Jesus doesn't know her. I mean, he knows her because he's Jesus, but there's no, been no interaction. There's, he, he doesn't even know of her from the townspeople because he just arrived. She's a Samaritan. Again, Jewish people don't have interactions with Samaritans. And we're going to explore that even further because she's going to ask that question. She was not seeking Christ. Now, there's one thing to be, in, to be known about this. This happens at a well, and there are three other people that go to a well, and God does something amazing in their life. Rebecca, Rachel, and Jethro's daughter all go to a well. And what happens at the well? They end up getting married. It's essentially what happens. So they are not seeking a husband when they go to the well, just as this woman was not seeking Christ. And yet, God has plans for them. So they're not outdoing what ends up happening. Uh, she's a woman. This was, the, I think, the biggest thing that I took us a while. We were studying this and we were to make observations about this. And our teacher was having us write all these observations. And we went through like this list, like, the, like she's a Samaritan, there's a well, and all these things. And we, we talked for 15 minutes and made up all these observations. He said, you're still missing like the biggest and most important one. And finally, we were like, what is it? And he goes, she's a woman. Like, it's so simple, but we often look over the fact and again, men, especially Jewish men, did not really interact with women, let alone a Samaritan woman. And as I said, she was there in the heat of the day, so she was avoiding other people. Uh, as we saw in her story earlier, she really did try to avoid people because people essentially shunned her. The town knew who she was. This isn't a huge city. Everybody probably knew exactly who she was, and they knew what was going on. So let's continue in John Read the next couple of verses. So let's reiterate. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So there's a lot going on there. I mean, we only, we only unpack a few verses here, and there is a ton. First, there's the whole offhanded comment that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, it's kind of an important aspect that John is writing in here because there's a lot of people that are reading this that don't understand the cultural influences that are going on. And in this, we have that. And in fact, it's vitally important to realize they definitely would not eat or drink. So for Jesus to ask for water from this woman is violating everything she understands about the way that Jewish people want to interact with Samaritans. Then, she's really confused I mean, she's asking him, why are you asking me for a drink? Again, this is that cultural thing. She's like, I don't understand why you want a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. Um, So not only is he just talking to her, he's asking her for something. He's interacting with her in a way she's never been interacted with before, probably not even by the people in her town, let alone a Jewish rabbi. And then she kind of is almost asking it as a rhetorical question. She's almost saying, do you actually expect me to do this? Or do you think I'm just going to ignore you? Like, you're asking as if it's a foregone conclusion conclusion that I'm going to actually draw water for you. But she doesn't know if she's even going to do that. Now, it's interesting because Jesus' response does not answer any of her questions. Jesus doesn't bother with the cultural differences. He just glosses over that fact. He basically says, without answering them, they're non-consequential. They're meaningless. We should not be even talking about this. We should not be talking about why Jewish people have no interaction with Samaritans. Because it's not important to this. Instead, he tells her that she should be asking him for water. Now this is going to greatly confuse her because he has absolutely nothing to draw water from. Which is what she says. Now, at the time, travelers would have carried with them probably a, a, some sort of hide sack that would be used to draw water. He doesn't have it with him, so the disciples must have taken it into the city. So she recognizes that he is a traveler, and then he should have something to draw water. So now she's wondering, who are you? Because there's a little more of an importance to him in her mind. And she's wondering why he's asking for water, this man who is clearly more important. She doesn't quite understand what he's telling her about asking him for water. But she understands it's a very important concept. But she is taking it as literal water out of the well. So then she has this simple question, are you better than Jacob? Jacob would be the the ultimate father to them. They based everything off of his basically supplying their need with this well. And she's saying, well, Jacob He dug this well, and he lived off of it, and this well has supplied us for this huge amount of time. Are you better than that? And Jesus tells her about living water. Now, it's very interesting because living water, to a Jewish person, they would have immediately understood. In fact, we're going to look at some passages of what that says in the Old Testament, further back about living water, um, because they would understand all these passages, and the Samaritans would not. The Samaritans essentially 
took what the Jewish people said in the gospel, and they basically picked and chose what they wanted to listen to. And so they wouldn't understand all these references because they didn't take scripture as a whole. They just took the parts they liked. So in Isaiah 12, verse 3, we see, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So Jesus immediately is calling up this idea of salvation to her. She's missing it. In Isaiah, again in Isaiah 35, chapter, or verse 7, the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And this whole idea of salvation is what Jesus is talking about and she is missing the point because she doesn't understand that this is what Jesus is talking about. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and, the, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This salvation is such a key thing with water. This is, this is what Jesus is talking about to her, and she's missing it. And again in Zechariah 14, 8, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. These are the images that Jesus is presenting to her with this just simple living water reference. Just saying, the water I will give him will be in, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the spring of life. She has no idea. She is thinking about, it's just going to be, it's going to quench my thirst. I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to trek out here in the heat of the day drawing water. That's what she is looking at. And she responds to him and says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 15. That's, that's all she's worried about. She is worried about just making her life easier. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue, and you see he is essentially very gentle in this. He knows the truth, but he simply says, Call your husband, and sees what she's going to do. She predictably chooses to conceal her sin by saying, I have no husband. She doesn't say her whole backstory. She doesn't say she's like staying with some guy that she's not married to. She just says, I have no husband, which is true, but it's not the story. Jesus calls her out on it and says, well, that's true. You've had five husbands and you're staying with a guy that is not your husband. Now, Jesus isn't just calling out this woman's sin. because She's not sinning alone. In fact, all of those guys were sinning as well. Um, some scholars believe the, the man that she is living with now probably was also married, and that's why she wasn't married to him. So he is sinning in, like, multiple ways. But this, this is one of the things that you have to realize about this culture. Women were not allowed to divorce. So think about that for a minute. This woman who has had multiple husbands, she didn't divorce them. She didn't want to get rid of them. They divorced her. And Jesus, in saying this, is also calling out all of those guys and their sin. But he's also taking pity on her because it wasn't her choice. She wasn't the one who 
went. She actually essentially had been used and cast off five times before and now had another guy that was using her and maybe was going to cast her off again. This is the worry and the fear that she is growing up with. And on top of that, the people in the town essentially disowned her because of this. She has this pain she's carrying around of being alone and wanting to find somebody. Wanting to find somebody that she can just live with and have joy with and be a part of their life and have be a part of her life. And everyone she's found has said, after a time, you know what, this isn't working out, I'm leaving. We're getting a divorce. That's really hard because as she sees this, she also realizes, because she didn't say any of this, and Jesus hasn't been around, she would have known if he was in town. So she, he walks up and out of the blue knows everything about her. And we're going to see in verse 29, um, she tells everybody, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. She recognizes that this is just the tip of the iceberg. He is mentioning one aspect of her life, but he knows every single piece of everything that has ever happened to her. And he's taking pity on her and he's offering her something she can't get. And she is just now beginning to realize that. Let's pick up in verse 19 because this is where she basically changes the conversation. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now we spend a lot of time in this passage, and there are a lot of detail. We could like just expound upon that one verse. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But I think there's a context here. Now, a lot of people will look at this, and, and just a casual look will be like, oh, she doesn't want to confront her sin. She's, she's going to just jump ship on that conversation and go somewhere else. Let's, let's propose to this rabbi a really hard question. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think she's realizing her depravity and his understanding of it and realizing that he has the answer to what is going on in her life. And the answer is worship. And she recognizes that, and so now she's asking for clarity. She's asking for him to tell her how to worship, where to worship. All these things that she's kind of been questioning and wondering, and she really is recognizing what this living water is. Now, she doesn't have a full, deep understanding of it, but she's becoming to the, coming to the realization that it is more than just regular water from a well, and so she starts to seek it. And Jesus tells her, oh, it's unimportant where you worship. I think that's something for us to realize, too. It is unimportant where you worship. Worship doesn't just happen to here, happen in here. And we talk about this all the time. We were born as worshipers, and we worship continuously because we were made to worship. The question being, who or what are we worshiping? And that needs to be something that is always upward focused and always focused on God when we're outside here. And that is what he is telling her. The Samaritans were trying to worship in one spot, the Jews were worshiping another, and he says, it's not important where you worship. What's important is where your heart is and how you worship. But then he does criticize them. He does criticize the Samaritans, and he says that they are trying to worship apart from Judaism, 
That's what he is saying about you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He's saying you are, you're picking and choosing parts of scripture. And, and really, salvation comes from the Jews. You cannot escape that. That is how God ordained it. So while it, it doesn't matter where you worship, it does matter that you follow what God laid down and how to worship. And that you worship him in that way. So he is saying they're going to get forgiveness through worshiping correctly through Judaism. So while it doesn't matter that they worship on the mountain, it does matter that they keep continuously push themselves away from Judaism and from the Israel and they say, we are not a part of you and we don't want to be. And Jesus calls them out and says that. So when we get into spirit and truth, we have to understand that when he's talking about spirit, he's talking about your heart. A lot of people will use this to say, well, this is like the, the heart worship and the brain worship together. And it is, but it's so focused on what they're doing. Your heart matters, and that's what he's saying. And on top of that, I think it has another meaning in that the Holy Spirit also is part of this. Like, he is talking like our spirit, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit being a part of helping us to worship and see God. And then he goes and he says, in truth, remember, you're supposed to worship in truth. Well, the truth is here. Truth is right here. And to them, that would have been different because, remember, the Samaritans pick and choose what they want to listen to in Scripture. They had Scripture. They just kind of said, well, we're just not going to listen to Deuteronomy, and we're not going to listen to parts of Job, and we're not going to listen to parts of, you know, they would just pick and choose what they wanted to listen to, and the rest of it they'd say, well, that's, you know, that you can believe that, but we don't really follow that. But God is saying through Jesus that this is true. And he's telling the Samaritans, this is true. And this is the truth that you need to worship. I think we can make sure that we don't like throw out parts of scripture that we don't like. The Samaritans did it and they got called out on it. How many times do we read a passage and we really struggle with it? And we're like, well, I'm just going to ignore it from now on. Oh, I'm just going to skip this chapter. I don't really. I mean, that can be also just from like just reading through and being from boredom. Like, I'm tired of reading these 1,800 family names. I'm just skipping the rest of this section of numbers because I don't need to hear what all the tribes are. But this is important. There is an importance in this. So it can be places we struggle with, both from just the actual content, but also from the spiritual meaning that God has put there. We need to make sure that we are like he is calling her out, not being picking and choosing what we're worshiping now in john 4 25 and 26 the woman says to him i know that the messiah is coming he was called the christ when he comes he will tell us all things and jesus said to her i who speak to you am he jesus doesn't do this very often he asks the disciples and they tell him but at this point he hasn't yet revealed that he's the messiah and he tells this woman how amazing is that? She is the first one, and there are other people that know, but she is the one that he says, you know what? You need to know this. I think at this point, she's probably not saved. She's probably not at the point where she's like, I'm going to give all to you, but she is now seeking him. She has now turned her life from just, I'm going to go through the motions, I'm going to worry about my life, and I'm not going to worry about what else is out there, but I'm going to focus on me. It's all about me, and it's all about my life being easier. Now she's kind of like, but wait, there's more. Now at this point, 
I'm going to jump a little bit because the next section is the disciples come back and kind of just wonder what the heck's going on. And we're not going to worry about the disciples today, but they really are like, you're, Jesus, you're talking to a woman and a Samaritan, and I'm confused. What is going on? Please tell me. But she is the focus here. So we're going to skip to verse 39. Um, because she goes out. She, By the way, she uh, drops everything. Not 39. I skipped too far. 28. Uh, so, so the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. So she at this point is like, this is, I mean, he said he was the Christ. He said he's the Messiah. But she also believes because of what he told her about herself. She goes, and remember, the town kind of has disowned her. The town is like not having interactions with this woman. She's that one that you see on this side of the street and you just like cross over the other side because you don't want to go. They shun her from the well. She has to come by herself in the heat of the day. Nobody helps her with anything. She's the one that everybody's avoiding. And yet, when she comes and says this to them, they're like, wait a minute. Something has changed in her life. They see it. They see this woman that they always interacted with in a very interesting way who was probably very, like, disheartened. She's probably beaten down. And she just kind of shuffled around town and, and just nobody really wanted to interact with her. And she's coming with, like, life. She's coming, like, come, see this man. How amazing is it? So she goes and they all come. And then we see in verse 39, we can skip to 39 now. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So this woman goes and she just starts proclaiming who Christ is to the people. And they believe her. They believe this woman that nobody really cared about. And I believe that her life completely changed. I believe that she really just started reforming her life and, because here was Christ saying, here is living water. Let me give you living water. And I think that her life just because of grace, saw a huge swing and a huge change. I think that that story, just coming from disheartened, all by yourself, beat down, disowned, and coming to Christ and having your life totally rejuvenated, and joy being back in her life, just seeing that change is incredible. We're going to go and we're going to look at a different change. Let's turn to Luke chapter 8. And in Luke chapter 8, we see the other part of the story that I was going to talk about. And this is the demon-possessed man. So to set the stage a little bit for this one, because this is important, Jesus was teaching. And he was teaching, and we have the parable of the sower just before. He tells the disciples about the parables. He tells them that they need to be a lamp into the world. Then they get on a boat, because he just goes, okay, we need to go across the sea. They have to remember, the, I'll do it from your perspective. Here's the east, and this is where he has been the entire time. And there's this big sea here, the Sea of Galilee, and he just goes across the sea, and there's nothing over here, that, the Decapolis is over here. These are all Gentiles. 
Jewish people didn't have any dealings with them other than some trade. So like for Jesus to go, hey, we need to go across the sea, and the disciples to just be like, okay, is kind of weird. And then Jesus, I figure this is after a long day in ministry. They're, they're on the boat, and Jesus falls asleep. What happens? This huge storm comes, and they wake him up. And they're like, we're going to die. And he calms the storm. So then they're continuing on, and we see in verse 26, what is said. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So imagine this. You're going across the sea. It's dark. There's a big storm. They finally calm the storm. You get there. You arrive on the eastern shore, and it's probably really early morning. Like, the sun may not have come up. How many of you have ever been up, like, early in the morning? Just that real nice quiet. It's beautiful. It's real quiet. Everything's calm. It's dark. Maybe the sun's just starting to crest. And then this crazy demon-possessed man comes running and screaming out of the tombs. So crazy demon-possessed man comes running up and screaming, breaking all the tranquility. And so it's just interesting, like, that that happens. And here's what the response, though, is. This is what happens right after that. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. All right, so demon-possessed man comes up. Jesus says, okay, get out of him, spirit. And the spirit doesn't leave. Now, we last year tackled this when we were talking about Mark. This wasn't because Jesus didn't have enough power to cast the demon out. It's because he was holding on to the demon and letting him stay there so the disciples would learn something about Jesus' power because of the way the demon was. Now, we have to look at the demon. The demon knew who Jesus was. The man had been possessed for a long time. He lived in the wild like a wild beast, kind of like Tyler, running around with crazy hair. Uh, he had supernatural strength. This man had been locked up, and these aren't, they, they probably had like crazy big chains on him trying to keep him, you know, the people were trying to care for this man. This wasn't like, we're going to lock him up so he doesn't destroy the town, because he didn't live in the town. He ran away to the wilderness. They locked him up because they wanted to take care of him. So in some ways, this is the opposite of the woman because the woman nobody wanted to deal with and this man who was crazy possessed by demons and super strong, they were trying to take care of, but they couldn't. And he was driven by the demons. Now there is something to be said about demons. There's some importance. One, they're real. Um, and if you, if you want more information about this, go back and find our Mark, uh, when we talked about this in Mark, because Tim does a really good job just expounding upon what is going on here. But they're real. They can possess unbelievers by invitation only. They can't possess anything without invitation. And we also see that when 
Jesus allows them to go into the beast, they can't just possess things. They have to have permission. And they have to have permission from God alone for everything other than us because we have free will. We can freely, well, we can't because believers cannot be possessed. And I would hope that you wouldn't want to be. But believers are not able to be possessed because we are possessed by the Holy Spirit. We've already a residence of God inside us, so we have no worry there. But unbelievers could invite demons into them. Their goal is to seek and thwart the power and work of God. That's all their goal is. Everything that God does, we want to do the opposite. We want to make sure it doesn't happen. And then we see in Colossians that they were disarmed on the cross by Christ. So at this point, the demons are pretty darn powerful. But they, they get disarmed only a year, a couple years after this, when Christ dies for our sins. And it's essentially as if they come in with a nuclear weapon, and then Christ dies on the cross, takes that away, and gives them a little squirt water pistol. And that's all they have to fight with. So one of the things, we can let demons be powerful in our lives. We have to realize they're not really nearly as powerful as God. And Jesus shows this. The man is begging, through the demons, the demons really are begging Christ not to torment them, realizing that they have been tormenting this man for almost his entire life. So this poor man, Jesus asks, what is your name? And they say, we're a legion. Now, a Roman legion was 6,000 men. So I'm not sure that there were 6,000 demons in this man, but there were a lot of demons. And that's what they're essentially saying. There, there are so many of us you can't count. There are so many of us possessing this man that it doesn't matter what our name is. Now realize in Jewish culture and in, that the only way to cast a demon out was to know the demon's name. And by saying we are legion, they're basically saying we're not going to give you our name because we know you can then cast us out. But we forget that this is Jesus and he doesn't need names to cast out demons. So they ask, because they don't want to be sent into the abyss, to enter the swine. And Jesus acquiesces. Now realize that swine are unclean animals. So to Jesus, this isn't a big deal. And to Jewish people, this isn't a big deal. The destruction of all these swines. But exactly what happens is they, Jesus acquiesces, so they get permission from God to possess these swine, and immediately they show their destructive nature and kill the swine. Crazy. And so we see the nature of demons there. And then the story continues in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding countryside of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Okay, these are people who really don't want to believe. They're people that are like, like the demon-possessed man was demon-possessed and was like crazy, I'm like off the wall. Jesus heals him and he comes back into his right mind. The other people, seeing this power of Jesus, are afraid of him. More afraid of him than the demons that were possessing the man. It's something to be said that the demons didn't want to get cast out of the country, which makes me think that there was a lot going on of demon worship in this country. So they kind of were afraid that Jesus would take the power that they were trying to control. So they see the man, um, and they fear, and 
Charles Spurgeon says this, here was a whole city at a prayer meeting praying against their own blessing. Horrible was their prayer, but it was heard and Jesus departed out of their coasts. And they were praying that Jesus would leave them alone. And he answered their prayer. He said, okay, and he left. When they come see the man, he is sitting at the Jesus' feet. Now that's a symbolism thing. He is sitting at his feet. And we often see that as saying that they are learning. He was sitting there learning from Christ. Um, in fact, he was probably being taught by Jesus. Because these people didn't just suddenly, poof, they're here. They're in the wilderness. The shepherds, the swine herds had to go get the people. So they had to go to town, which was probably a good distance away. They went to town. They got the people. Those people went and got the people that were in the surrounding countryside, and they all came back. So we're talking hours upon hours of this population gathering to basically say, get out of here, Jesus. So in this time, they didn't just sit and hold casual conversation. I think Jesus taught this man, and he spent time teaching him about the love of God. He spent time teaching him of the grace that healed him. Well, we see his reaction to this time in verses 38 and 39. If I can find where I am. Um, The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So this man really wants to go with Jesus, really wants to go with the guy who saved him. He wants to leave everything, just like the disciples did. In fact, even more than they did, they were called, and they're like, all right, we're going to come. But there were times where they struggled with leaving everything behind. And we don't see this with this man. This man, everything he knew was pain, and he wants to go. And Jesus just simply says, sorry. When we looked at Mark before, we saw that the people, the, the demons asked to be Asked of Jesus to be cast into the swine. The people asked Jesus to leave. Both of those he says yes to. The man asked Jesus to go, if he can go with them, and he says no. And sometimes no is the most, like the best thing for us. And he tells the man no. In fact, he has a more important calling for this man. This man who he had healed from demons and he had saved from what had been going on. He tells him, you need to go and you need to tell people. This is the first person that Jesus sends out other than the disciples, and he is not Jewish, and Jesus sends him out. He tells him to go and proclaim who Christ is. And remember, everyone he heals other than this man, he says, keep quiet. Don't tell anybody. They don't always listen, and I think God knew they weren't going to listen, but this man, he specifically tells him to go, and he is the first one really sent out on his own. Disciples came back to Jesus and they weren't really sent out till the Holy Spirit came. This man was sent out at this point. And we see in Mark 5. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's what Mark says about this. So this wasn't even just the city. This was the entire Decapolis, which were ten cities. This whole location was considered the Decapolis because of the ten cities. And he went out and he told everybody. He took Jesus' word and he said, I'm going to fulfill this with fervor, and I'm going to go and proclaim who you are. He took it and ran with it. And we saw the woman doing the same thing. The woman, alone, destitute, 
away from everybody else, on her own, afraid of what people thought of her. She was changed by grace. And she went and proclaimed who Christ was to the people around her, and they believed her testimony and came to see him and believed him. Demon-possessed man. He is there, and he is being cast down and thrown around by demons. He is no social interaction because he just can't. And yet Jesus comes and through grace heals this man and brings him back to his right mind. And then he sends him out to the Decapolis where many people believe and are marveled at what God did in his life. So what is it that God has called us to do? We don't have, maybe don't have these powerful stories of changed lives. Um, I don't think anyone here was possessed by a demon, but we have a life that was changed by grace. I mean, but if not for grace, we would not be sitting here. Can we take these lessons? Can we take what these people did and go out and proclaim what God has done in our lives and be real and true and tell people about it and show them the grace of God and the love that he has for us? I think that's a lesson that we can learn from these two and just see through their changed lives. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today, for your grace that abounds ever so much. Pray that as we continue through love in worshiping you and we continue in praising you that your grace abounds through us. Help us to love you. Help us to give you your due and help us to praise you. And then help us to like these two that we learned about today, proclaim who you are and what you have done in our lives. You know us down to the very fiber of our being because you created us. You love us for who we are. God, we pray that you are praised and blessed and that you lead us and help us to bless and praise you forever. Pray also Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.